What's up guys? Glad to have you back. This is William here at World of Wally. Another episode, uh, another week. And uh, guys, look, I'm I'm not getting any younger. Uh, I know retirement is somewhere in my future. Uh, eventually, I figure by the time I'm at least 80, I'll get a chance to retire. So, you know, like a lot of my listeners, money is always something that, you know, you're always thinking about. So I, I ran across this gentleman um, in an actual um, podcast host guest website type situation. A gentleman named Herb Morgan. He's actually Herb W. Morgan III, very official sounding. And right now he's the Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer um, at one of the uh, largest financial uh, institutions in the, in the country right now. He, uh, he's also a pretty educated guy, too. So when I ran across his credentials, I thought this would be a good guy to have on the show. Um, he's involved in a lot of philanthropy, of course, in education. Uh, he also uh, served as director chair of the investment committee of the foundation chapter of Theta Chi Fraternity. He served as director chair of the Arizona School Choice Trust from 2000 to 2002. And, of course, he graduated with honors from the University of California at Santa Cruz with a Bachelor of Arts in Economics. So, like I said, God knows what he's talking about. And he was going to help me uh, specifically and the listeners, but but me because I was curious about it, uh, understanding the market and how to use the market effectively and how to prepare for that one day that, you know, eventually I'm going to get a chance to shut it down and call it retired. So, guys, if you'll hang in after the break, uh, you'll get a chance to hear Herb and I uh, have a conversation about slaying the bulls and the bears. All right, guys, after the break. Hey, guys, your host, William, here. Quick question. Are you a First and Second Amendment kind of person? Because if you are, our new affiliate partner, Tactical Brotherhood is your place. If you're looking for ammo, guns, or gear, check out the link in the episode notes and enter code PATRIOT15 at checkout to receive that 15% discount. Also, Tactical Brotherhood, veteran-owned company. Now, back to the episode. All right, everybody, we're back from the break, and as promised today, my guest, Mr. Herb Morgan. Mr. Morgan, how are you doing today? Well, it couldn't be better. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate I'm it. glad you have time to get on the show with us. You are coming from the San Diego, California area, so you, uh, what time, let's see, it's about, uh, what, about 10 o'clock in the morning out there, correct? It is about 10 o'clock 10, in the morning. 10 a.m. May gray, so no no cloud cover till about two in the afternoon. Well, there, the rest of the month. there you go. Well, and San Diego is supposed to be the most beautiful city in the United States, anyways. What I was told, so it, it is Amer- America's finest city, is what we like to call. Oh, it. oh, that's high praise right there. All right, for my listeners, uh, <laughs> I'm going from this point on. I'm gonna call you Herb. I, you're probably a Herbert or something like that, but I don't want to confuse you with the very famous quarterback that you have for your Chargers. So we'll just call you Herb at this point, okay? That would be that would be 
just fine. And and uh, we appreciate it if you never mention the, that team's name again in this city. We're not sir, fans or happy with them. Sir, I'm just saying you had an opportunity to keep them, and through some financial tomfoolery, they are now somewhere else. So. <laughs> this is correct. All right. <laughs> So for my listeners, Herb is a senior marketing director, and he is an expert in, in investment advisement. Am I speaking too heavily to say you are an expert in it? Well, yeah, I'm a senior managing director. I'm the chief investment officer at Efficient Market Advisors. Uh, we are a money management firm. So yes, I, I think that's right. I'm a investment and financial markets experts. So what he's saying is any money question you've got, he can answer. That's what he's saying. That's what I'm saying. Yes, sir. All right. So first of all, now for me, this conversation has a little bit more meaning than some of the younger folks that might be listening to this show and even some of the older folks uh, that will be listening to this episode. Um, I'm a 51-year-old that will have to work till I'm 101 before I can retire because of some... um, well, because of some financial tomfoolery and some poor planning on my part from back in the day. So um, let's just kind of bounce around just a little bit. And I'm going to ask a few questions and you give me your expert opinion on them and we'll, we'll go from there. Okay. Sounds like a plan to me. All right, first of all, you hear, we'll just run through some terminology that a lot of folks hear and they don't truly understand what it is. Okay. They hear the term stock market, and they really a lot of folks truly do not know what the stock market ha- has it has to do. Uh, there's also the bond market. So why don't you, in your own personal opinion, your your financial uh, expertise is being tapped at this point. Stocks and bonds. If you were trying to advise somebody, let's say you're trying to advise a 30 year old with a with a a pretty good job. I mean, I'm not gonna say let's say they're making. Sixty-five to eighty thousand dollars a year, and they have income that they would like to um, invest into these markets. What type of percentage would you be looking at between stocks and bonds? What would you suggest? Well, that's a great, great question. For a thirty-year-old, you're definitely gonna. I would suggest a greater percentage in stocks. Now, the difference between stocks and bonds is stocks are higher risk, therefore the expected return is higher. Bonds are lower risk, the expected return is lower, but it's more consistent. So the younger you are, big percentage in stocks, as you age, get to be, I'm 54, right? I'm I'm down to about 70% stocks, but when I was 30, I was 100. And the reason I was 100 is because I didn't care if they went down because I'm on this journey of still investing every month. I'm buying more. But when I get towards retirement, I'm really more concerned about preservation. All right. And of course, as you get older, your bond percentage will progressively increase. Uh, so what, when, let's say your personal journey, let's say you said you're 54. So let's say you're still going strong at 70 years old. Uh, what kind of percentage would you be looking at? I mean, in a, in a, let's, I'm going to say in a as perfect a situation from a market standpoint as you could conceive, what, what kind of percentage would you be looking at? Yeah, the, the easy rule of thumb is to take 100, subtract your age, and that's the percentage you would have in stocks. So the 
if I'm 70, 100 minus 70 is 30, I'd have 30 in stocks and 70 in bonds at age 70. Now that's an old, old rule of thumb, but I've, I've been in this business for 37 years and it's really not failed. It's a pretty good rule of thumb. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. I, I, I assume that as you got older, the safer, and I hate to use the term bet, which to be honest with you, that's all markets are a bet of, of sorts. So, right. But it's a safer bet. So um, a, a term that's used quite a bit in my part of the world uh, that was a, it was a huge push back, especially when I was a younger person, is the term mutual funds. So explain to my listeners the... Uh, the differences between mutual funds and what they call ETFs? Well, great question. So mutual funds and ETFs are both investment companies. It's kind of like all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. Okay. Right? So, So they're both investment companies. A traditional mutual fund, new shares are created and redeemed in cash, meaning you put money in, you get shares, when you're ready to redeem, you give back your shares, you get cash. And ETF is also an investment company, but when you create, when you want to own shares, you create them, you don't deposit cash, you deposit the companies in the index it tracks. Now, it happens seamlessly, investors don't know about it or see it, but in the end, what it means for investors is that this in-kind creation redemption feature means that there's not a lot of realized capital gains within the portfolio. Even though there are gains, there's appreciation. Therefore, there's lower tax liability on an ETF. So outside of your IRAs, ETFs make great sense. They generally are far less expensive as well. So there's two really big advantages to an ETF, cost and tax. Okay, so things like stocks and bonds and mutual funds, all that kind of stuff, those investment vehicles have been around for ages. I mean, they literally have been around since, you know, before time, it seems. But the younger crowd, uh, my, I'll give you a prime example. My son, 23 years old, just recently graduated college, officially now unemployed. He told me the other day he's a college graduate and now he's officially unemployed. So... um he uh, dabbles, and I do use the term dabble, he dabbles with uh, different types of, um, of investment uh, avenues, let's say. Uh, he, he dabbles with what is now becoming very popular and uh, commonplace. He deals with like cryptocurrency and that type of medium, uh, Dogecoin and stuff like that. What, what part do you see that type of investment vehicle playing a part in the overall scheme as we go forward? Well, I would, I would put it this way. So um, cryptocurrency is an outgrowth of something known as the blockchain. The blockchain is an evolutionary, revolutionary, exciting, new, very important technology, which ultimately drives human existence forward. It is really important. It's going to allow for the paper, paperless society, instantaneous settlement of contracts, drives efficiency in capital and financial insurance markets around the world. That's what the blockchain will do. The tools to utilize the blockchain, some of them I think will be 
the legitimate cryptocurrencies. Okay, so there's this real potential. But a lot of the younger folks haven't had their rear ends handed to them yet. Uh, like maybe I had when I experienced the stock market crash of 87 or the dot-com bubble burst of 1999. When that burst in 2000, the Y2K and all of that, and, and, uh, and the 08 financial crisis. And so there will be uh, a weeding out of that, of that system. There will be coins that go to zero. There will be coins, I think, that will be hacked. Uh, but there will also be currencies that end up being significant, realistic implementers of exchange and conveyors of value. You know, in our country before uh, years and years ago, we actually had competing currencies. So banks could issue their own currency. What I'm perplexed about today is why doesn't Wells Fargo issue a coin? Why doesn't Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, why aren't there sort of more mainstream sponsors of coins as opposed to this coin is issued by somebody, but we don't know who he is. So how do we really know and guarantee that there's this limited supply? Also, in the US, we have the most stable currency in the world. It's not that stable, but it's the best one in the world. So we don't think about the need to have a medium of exchange outside of our dollar so much, right? You're confident that your money in your bank account will be there next week and will purchase about what it purchases this week. But in many other parts of the world, there's no trust in the currency. Chinese business people do desperate things to try to get their capital out of the country. Venezuelans, Mexicans, Brazilians, all over the world, they want their money out. Cryptocurrencies allow for the facilitation of that and allow them to get outside of a corrupt uh, monetary regime. In the US, we don't need it like they need it, but we're certainly getting into it if that all makes sense. Well, as you have potential clients that approach you about investment strategies, especially the younger crowd, and I, and I hate to keep referencing the younger crowd because a person like me, like I said, you know, 50 years old, I'm not saying that I'm afraid of the concept of cryptocurrency. It's just I'm not nearly educated enough on it to, to jump wholeheartedly into it. Do you see that becoming, when they come to you, is that something that they inquire about? Is that something that uh, a type of investment medium that you possibly introduce to them or, or mention it to them as part of the investment strategy? I mean, how does that work? Well, I don't, and I can't. It's sort of like because cryptocurrencies are not securities, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm an investment advisor. I'm right. registered with the Securities Exchange Commission. Okay. I deal in things that are securities. So that'd be like somebody coming to me and asking me for advice on art or classic cars, right? I'm, I don't have the authority legally right. or the expertise. Um, I, I do think classic cars and art and cryptocurrency are all kind of quasi-legitimate things to possibly invest in. Mm -hmm. But there's so much speculation and excess in the crypto space. Um, you know, think about it. If you open a uh, you know, a, an account where you can buy crypto, there's no SIPC insurance like there is with your Charles Schwab account. There's right. no FDIC insurance on the crypto wallet like there is with your Bank of America account. So 
it is truly the Wild West. Caveat emptor, buyer beware. There's going to be some big money made and some big, big money lost. So you you could it would be outside your job scope or outside your regulatory ability or outside the outside your opportunity to be able to do that. It would be simply an opinion that you would express to them or share with them. You wouldn't because yeah, yeah I understand. So um, what about the um, like where we are right now? I mean, it's I, and I don't. I didn't want to jump into politics this quick into the conversation, but it always seems like with political shift, there's always a, a pretty hard flux in the market one way or the other. Like where are we, as of this this uh, interview today, uh, May the 10th, where are we sitting? Like, uh, like when you come to work every morning, what's the one thing that you're looking for to see if it's fluxing up or fluxing down? Boy, that changes from week to week. But, I mean, if you think about this week, May 10th, there's a, there's a couple of things that are happening, I think, in the economy that can, can – there's like three things that really drive the short term. The first one, believe it or not, this is, this is bigger than I think the news is, is recognizing yet. It's this ransomware phenomena. We have this uh, pipeline on the East Coast right now that is shut down because of um, – Basically, some terrorist, we don't know where or who they are from where, mm-hmm. saying, pay us, we shut down your business. Well, it's not just that pipeline. Here in California, a major med- medical provider called Scripps, mm-hmm. is where I go for my annual physical, they are completely shut down. You can't get an appointment. They've lost all their records. I don't know if they've lost them, but they're being held hostage. Uh, the FBI is involved, and this is going to have a negative impact on the economy if we can't get it fixed and fixed quickly. Uh, number two thing this week is up for discussion is this infrastructure package. Uh, we, there's a meeting on Wednesday. You've got uh, Speaker of the House, Minority Leader of the House, Senate Leader, Senate Minority Leader, and the President of the United States all sitting down together on Wednesday. The President wants $2.3 trillion in infrastructure spending. Uh, 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 Mitch McConnell, the Minority Leader of the Senate, and McCarthy, Minority leader in the House have said they want about six to eight hundred billion. So, turn on your favorite right wing or left wing news broadcast, and you'll get crazy opinions. But the reality is, they're going to come to a conclusion somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's not going to have a major impact on the economy. The third thing, and I think this is the most important one right now, is the buildup of inflationary pressures in the economy. The Federal Reserve is saying we're we see it. We're, we're not worried about it. It's going to go away on its own. We're calling that transitory. So we're going to keep on buying assets, pumping in liquidity, keeping rates low because we want to see the jobs number go up. And we had a weak jobs number report on Friday, which meant the Fed could continue to do this for longer or would continue to do it for longer. And that's why you see the market rallied on Friday, today, Monday, May 10th. The Dow's up 240 points. As we, you know, as we're sitting here, I just and I've I've heard this for forever. Seems like since I was a since I voted out. I want to say my first national election, which was, gosh, I'm so old now. Oh, I know it was. Uh, it was not even. It was not even Reagan. It was uh, Bush. I think that was the first national election I got a chance to vote in. Was the first Bush, not the second Bush. 
Uh, yeah. H.W. Yeah, H.W. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up. I grew up as a teenager with Reagan in office, and then and then Bush. So um, I've been hearing this, like I said, probably since then. The market is either adversely or um, or or favorably uh, affected by the political office that occupies the White House. Is that a myth? Well, we've only had forty six presidents. And you need, in statistics, to prove anything, you need 100 samples. Okay. Right? 100 data points. Now, that being said, look, I mean, you got the two political parties. One party believes that the greatest thing we could do for everybody is to have more growth, uh, more economic growth, and all that would be good, and it would get spread around, and that's the Republican Party. Democratic Party believes that it's too, it's not spread around fairly enough. So they want to redistribute it a little bit more. Uh, and they say without without killing the golden goose of, of production, right? So right. That's, the big, that's the big debate. So uh, I, I'm looking at the proposals, right? And I see what we've got. We talk, we're talking about the president's uh, big tax reform proposal would raise corporate rates from 21 to 28%. I think... Mark's not going to like it, but I don't think it kills the golden goose. We're talking about raising the personal uh, rate, and we're talking about uh, a step up in um, removing the step up upon death and your capital gains. I think that will be a fundamental, fundamentally detrimental impact if it gets passed. I think it'll hurt the capital markets. It'll hurt the capital formation. It'll probably get reversed in another administration. So it, it's tough to see what they're going to get. Remember this too: they barely have a one-seat majority because of the, the you know, the vice president taking bribe, uh, breaking ties in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And not all the Democrats are sort of far left. They're in, not just like all the Republicans are far right. There's a lot of centrists that need to be brought on. Right. And in the House, their 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 majority is very small, and there's a midterm election coming up in 18 months. So, um, I'm not ready to to get bearish because I don't know what the final contents of that tax law change will be, and whether or not there'll be a, there'll be enough negative in it to really impact the markets. Okay. Uh, one little micro question under this kind of that kind of that was a one A question. This is like a one B kind of associated with that. Do you? Because I know you you keep your pulse on the market daily. Do you see certain stocks or groups of stocks or investment opportunities, uh, different categories of investment opportunities? Do you see them become more prevalent depending on what political office actually holds control? I think there is a little bit, but there's also the, the broader, like, so for example, okay, you know, Biden comes in and everybody says, okay, well, you know, he and his party are pretty anti, uh, old, old style energy, right? So mm-hmm. anti, uh, you know, gas and pipelines, right. and fossil oil, fuel related, yeah. Fossil fuel related, but yeah. energy, when I started in this business in the eighties, energy made up. Oh God, it probably made up 25 to 30% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500, right? 
Right. Today, energy is less than 3%. What that tells you, and we're consuming more energy than ever before, but our economy's fundamentally changed. The business of America is technology. Yeah. It just is. It's so big that we keep adding, we added a new sector two years ago called uh, communication services. It used to just be a couple of phone companies were in there, mm-hmm. but we moved Google. Google is not considered tech. Google is now communication services. Facebook, not tech. It's now communication services. And tech, even though it keeps losing companies, is 26%, more than a fourth of our market value in the U.S., Communication services is now 11. So if you took the 11 and the 26, you're at 37%. And that's not because they're super overvalued or inflated like they were in the dot-com bubble. It's because it's it's transforming the world. And it's really most of this transformational change is coming from American companies. There are some great Chinese and Japanese and German and British companies. Yes, but... Microsoft and Apple and Google and Qualcomm and Skyworks and Corvo and 5G companies. It's the U.S. You follow that with healthcare and finance. And I mean, even if we were an industrial powerhouse of the country, industrials are only 9% of our market value today. Hmm. So uh, now that being said, yeah, energy probably gets hurt under Biden administration, but that, that sort of movement in the marketplace took place immediately right after the, you know, the election results were known. So that's sort of priced in already. Hmm. Uh, Well, there's three terms that I want to, I want to chat with you about. uh, And this is for any of my novice listeners that aren't really financially savvy. You hear these terms all the time. They want to kind of get your, your take, your definition. You, You actually used one of these terms a few minutes ago where you said bearish. They talk about a bear market and a bull market. What, what, explain to any of my novice listeners what you mean by a bear market or a bull market. Sure. You know, I throw, I throw out this vernacular like everybody knows it, so I'm glad you asked. Uh, bearish is when you think the market is going down. Bullish is when you think it's going up. Um, it's really just that simple. Bear down, bull up. And that's, of course, when it's a bear market, you want to try to buy, be buying as much stock as possible. And a bull market, you want that's when you want to dump. I hate to use the word dump. That's a that's a very derogatory term in your in your genre. But uh, but you want to be dumping stock at that point. And then a, another term that is thrown around on it seems like every media outlet uses this term, the Fed. When the term the Fed is used for my novice you know listeners, what is the Fed? What is that? What what does that consist of? Sure. So the, the Federal Reserve is a bank for the banks. Back in time, we used to have a lot of bank failures in this country. So you as a consumer, you would take your money, go put it in a bank, but if that bank failed, my great-great-grandfather in, uh, was an Italian immigrant in Connecticut. He put the family savings in a bank, the bank failed, he lost everything. Today, that can't happen. A, you know, if you remember the movie Wonderful Life, Right, Jimmy Stewart, and people mm-hmm. are saying, Where's my money? So well, I lent it to so and so, right? So the banks only keep a small percentage of what you deposited with them. They only keep a very small percentage on hand. The rest, they make loans. So banks basically increase the money supply every time they make a loan. Well, in order to prevent every 
coming in at once and asking for their money back, if they do ask for their money back, the bank can go to its bank, put up those mortgages and other loans as collateral, get cash to meet the deposits. So the presence of the Fed, the central bank it's called, is there to prevent bigger runs on the banks. And they call that being the lender of last resort. So if your bank is out of cash, they put up their loan as collateral, the Fed gives them cash to, to make the depositors, to clear your checks, etc. That's their first function. That was their primary function when they came into being. They are independent. They're not part of the federal government. The Federal Reserve testifies to Congress, gives testimony, and the board, the governors that are appointed to the Federal Reserve must be uh, appointed by a president and then approved by the Senate, but they don't report to anybody. They are truly an independent central bank. It's another one of the reasons why everywhere in the world, people want to hold our currency, this independent central bank, the Fed or the Federal Reserve. The second thing that the, that the Congress gave the Fed, now it is created by an act of Congress. They gave them this new job after we had all that inflation in the 70s. You and I grew up with as kids. Right. And we said, you have two more jobs. You need to intervene in the marketplace in any way you seem fit to maintain price stability, which was from the 70s, stop inflation. And then they gave them another job, which was you need to foster full employment. So if prices are running high or prices are plummeting, deflation, the Fed is supposed to intervene. They intervene by raising or lowering interest rates, buying or selling government securities to, to get those interest rates moving to a place where it would stimulate the economy. Then if they see that jobs are too low, which is what they're saying they see now, the, the number of Americans in the labor force, declaring themselves in the labor force is about 8 million below where it was during the prior administration before the outbreak of the coronavirus. So today the Fed says, well, we, we, we need to get these people back in the labor force. So we're going to keep rates low to encourage businesses to invest. We're going to provide tons of money supply to encourage lending in the banking system to try to get this happening and try to get it stimulated. That's that's who the Fed is. That's so that's their that's the Fed's next move is what they're trying to implement right now. Yeah, the Fed is doing two things right now. Number one, there's an interest rate that they do control, just one, well, two actually, but this federal funds rate, they've lowered it to essentially zero. So banks can borrow from them uh, if they wanted to through another thing called the discount rate uh, at essentially zero. There's money awash. And if banks can borrow cheap, they can lend cheap. If you if if People borrow money from a bank, that stimulates economic growth and jobs and activity. The concern right now is if you have too much money floating around in the system, chasing too few goods and resources, right? There's so much money that the Fed has put out there, and we're all running to buy things because, oh, we've been locked up for a year. I want to buy tickets to my Padres. I want to go fly and see my parents in North Carolina. I want to do all these things. So there's this mad rush to do stuff and buy. Plus on the other side, not from the Fed, but from the treasury, we gave just about everybody a $1,400 check, 85% of Americans. I want to spend that money. That's driving up the prices of everything. This massive pent up demand. So the Fed now has two jobs, remember? Inflation and employment. 
Unemployment is still below where they want it. Inflation's above and they're conflicting. How long will they let inflation run above in an attempt to bring up the jobs is the major economic question of the day. Just a side note, uh, we talked about inflation a few minutes ago. Inflation is a real thing, and it is it happens daily, regardless of who's in charge of whatever. So, uh, so I, I don't. I think the best way to look at it, you know, I don't know what you pay for gas in in uh, in Mississippi, but but I uh, uh, I filled up this morning, and I paid four dollars and eighty cents a gallon. Ooh. I think yep. as of right now, I think here in my local market, it's like $2.69 a gallon. It'd almost be worth it to drive from San Diego. That's, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, when you want to know what kind of effect inflation has on people, there's a few ways to find out. You check gas prices across the board. You check, uh, and then you check perishables like milk, eggs, stuff like that, because uh, I joke with people all the time because uh, I'm in grocery retail. That's my real job, my J-O-B. And people ask me when's the best time to buy eggs. I tell them on Sunday, and they say, why? I said, because eggs are like the stock market. They either go up or down every Monday because that's tied to the commodities report that comes out on Sundays. That's good. That's I, I didn't know that. That's yep. good. I just yeah, you have to buy them on Sundays because they either go up or down every Monday, and that's nationwide. That's not just in our area. Well, another great one for people, I mean, it, it's it's here, uh, lumber, right? We, lumber is uh, buy a house, uh, you know, build a house. Back a year ago, for a thousand board feet of lumber, the spot, the commodity price was under $400. Today, it's over $1,600. Yeah, I had a guy yesterday told me that $50,000 worth of lumber could build ten and a half houses a year ago today. He said, it, today, he said, if I took that same $50,000, he said, I could buy two, he said, I could build two and a half houses. Yep, yep. That's, um, that's an it, insane it, it, total. It is, in, it is insane. And so what the Fed is saying right now is they're saying, look, we see corn, we see lumber, we see gas and oil. We see the price of an airline ticket. I mean, this reopening, trying to get a ticket to Hawaii right now, right? Everybody on the West Coast, you guys all go to the Caribbean. We mm -hmm. go to Hawaii because right. it's only about one and a half hour flight from here. Um, the, the prices are all skyrocketing because of the demand. And what the Fed is saying is that we don't need to take action because we think that these prices are going to come back down on their own. That this surge is just related to the reopening of the coronavirus ending, pandemic ending. So we think that this price surge is going to go away on its own. If the Fed's right, great. But if they're wrong, it's a whole new reset for higher prices of everything. And if if you're young and working, that's not so bad because your wages are going to go up over time, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're our parents' age, 75, 80, 85 years old, and you've got a very conservative portfolio and it's in CDs or treasuries or annuities, Suddenly, the price of everything you planned on goes up. Inflation is just a wicked, wicked, wicked theft and redistribution from older Americans and redistributing to both the younger Americans and, quite frankly, to the government. If right. you're in debt, if you're in debt, inflation's a great thing. And nobody's in more debt than the United States Treasury in the yeah. world. All right, so I've heard this term. I essentially my entire life. So I'm going to ask you, 
I've heard the term that the all you got to do to fix the problem is just have the Fed print more money. Is that an actual thing? I mean, do they, is that, a, is that, because you know, the, the deal, you used to talk about the $1,400 checks earlier. Well, I heard a guy yesterday at work tell me, man, I'm waiting on Biden to send me another check. Is, I mean, are they just printing money indiscriminately? Is that how that actually works? That can't be possible. Well, it, you know, like everything else, there's a little bit more to it. So, so remember, when, a, when you put your money in a bank, and then the bank lends that out, the bank, a private bank, has printed money. And when the banks call in their loans, like they did in the 08 financial crisis, they are shredding money. So, yes, then you move on to the Fed. And what the Fed prints money, you don't really have much in the way of printing presses anymore, but what they do is they go out into the marketplace and they buy bonds. And they take those bonds out of circulation, hold them on their balance sheet. And these bonds are United States Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities which are issued by the agencies like Fannie Mae mm-hmm. and so the bonds are now out of circulation and the cash is in circulation and that is printing money so if when they do that when they buy the bonds they drive the prices up it's a violent intervention into the marketplace it drives the price of those bonds up which means interest rates are then lower if interest rates are lower it enables the U.S. Treasury to buy to borrow with reckless abandon. And so, when somebody says, "I'm waiting for a new another check," or I, you know, or I'm not going to take a job because I'm getting a check, and they extended unemployment, and they give me the extra three hundred dollars on top of the state program now from the feds, what they're really saying is, "I'm going to I'm going to pull forward economic activity for the future because all of that Treasury issued debt." has to be serviced, the interest has to be paid, and ultimately the the money gets repaid. Now their argument for saying the Fed can just print more, their argument is this, they say, look, the government's gonna be around forever, so we can have the debt level just grow and grow and grow forever. What they don't understand is throughout economic history, debt levels of regimes are what have toppled them from great power. I mean, the Roman Empire was a debt issue, right? I mean, Greek Greece, just a few years ago, was a debt issue. The U.S. has a unique position in the world. Remember what we talked about earlier. Everybody trusts our currency. Everybody values our currency. So when they say we can just print more, what they're saying is we'll never print so much that the rest of the world doesn't want our currency. But what if the rest of the world decides they don't want our currency anymore? What if they decide they'd rather have renminbi or ruble or euro or some sort of electronic cryptocurrency? And the, and the U.S. dollar, which has been the dominant since World War, the end of World War II, we won World War II. That's how we got in this position. I believe right now what we're doing is abusing that privilege and abusing that position by borrowing far too much and keeping interest rates too low. But my business hat thanks them because every time they do this, they inflate the asset prices that I own for my investors, stocks and bonds. So I'm a beneficiary. Hmm. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, 
Mr. Morgan, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Uh, I, I mean, I'm I'm not a financial expert. I mean, I, I have a bit of knowledge about the financial world. Uh, I'm glad to see that we were able to discuss some some things today to help further the my education on finances and hopefully some of the listeners for sure. Hey, before you get out of here though, what's a uh, like? Where can you be found? Like, if there if people want to reach out to you for uh, financial advice or for uh, some type of consultation, how can they find you? Well, thank, thanks for asking. So my website is uh, www.efficient-portfolios.com, efficient-portfolios.com, and there's all the contact us and all the buttons there. But I also do a podcast. Uh, it's a weekly economic and market commentary that's free to anybody. It's on all the services, and it's called Slaying Bulls and Bears with Herb Morgan. Mm-hmm. Slaying Bulls and Bears with Herb Morgan. That's a much more impressive title than mine, for sure. I don't know. I like World of Wally. So uh, I do have one curiosity question I forgot to ask you before we, you get out of here. You're sitting around the dinner table with friends and family. Do you get asked all the time, like, what's the next Facebook or what's the next hot stock or, or, you know, are, are, they, are people constantly bombarding you with those type of questions? There, there, yeah, there's some of that, but I tell you the thing I get the most is the, the armchair, the armchair uh, economist or the armchair investment guy who, who instead of asking me with 35 years of experience wants to just tell me what's up mm. because of uh, something he read on the dark corner of the internet or, it's yeah. the latest Dogecoin or whatever like yeah. that. And so I don't really engage that. I just smile and nod and thank them for their uh, great advice. Uh, but and then, but there are those two that are kind of always looking for that little, little freebie. <laughs> so, I just so, wondered if your friends and family hit you up pretty regular. So. They, they do. I, I, I thought them. maybe you just handed them a business card and said, call me Monday. I didn't, I didn't know. That's exactly it. I say, if you want to win the lottery, you got to buy a ticket. Yeah, and you're talking, about the, you're talking about the armchair guy, the armchair uh, finance advisor. Uh, that's uh, one of those day traders on steroids. They just don't know any difference. So. There's a, there is a lot of that. And, you know, bull, bull markets, don't, I always tell people this. This is, this, is, this is advice. Don't ever confuse a bull market with brains. So, you know, you walk into that casino and you put $100 on red, they spin the wheel, it comes up red. It doesn't make you smart. It makes you lucky. And when you when you confuse the two and you're convinced that you know what you're doing, that's when you can do a lot of harm to yourself. Very that, dangerous. That is very true. Can't think of a better way to end the episode than that little tidbit, that little nugget of advice. Like I said, can't thank you enough, Mr. Morgan, and, uh, and I will be in touch with you uh, in the future, because I'd love to have you back on. We kind of get caught up on where we are uh, in the world from a financial standpoint. Anytime. Can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. Have a great week. You too. And as always, guys, Wally out. Hey, guys, quick shout out to Timothy O. Davis of Ridgewood Recording Studios. His studio offers a full line of music production ranging from song demos and singles to fully produced albums. He focuses on excellence at every level of the recording and production process and will work with you for your project-specific needs. So remember, guys, Timothy O. Davis. Reach out to him at timothydavis.org front slash Ridgewood Studios.
This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner.